There are twin beds in a hotel bedroom. Had a day off, so we were going to write a song. All our early songs had always had, please, please, me, from me to you, P.S. I love you. We always had this very personal um, thing, thank you, girl. And we hit on the idea of doing a kind of reported conversation. I saw her yesterday. She told me what to say. She said, she loves you. So it just gave us another little dimension, really. It just meant that the song then was something different from what we and other people had written before. We used to write in the back room of our house in Fortland Road in, uh, in Allerton, Liverpool. And uh, Dad would be in the living room watching the telly, you know, and we'd be in the back room writing, she loves you and stuff. And John and I came out, we'd done it in the evening, kind of, and we used to try it out. And my dad said, how, how do you like this? She loves you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And played it all. She said, very nice, son. He said, very nice. He said, but there's enough of these Americanisms around. Couldn't you sing, she loves you? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Now, Dad, you haven't quite got the idea, you know. I have it from a reliable source that a half-million advance orders have been made for the Beatles' latest single release, She Loves You. It looks as though it could well be three number ones in a row for the Liverpool boys. I'm Richard Buskin. I'm Eric Tarrant. I'm Alan Cozen. I'm Craig Bartok. Beatles, naked. You know you should be glad. You 
time I felt that She Loves You is badly underrated. It's kind of categorised as part of that whole mop-top or so-called mop-top era of the Beatles. A sort of catchy pop tune but very middle of the road and of course they quickly moved on from that. When you really listen to that song and don't hear it through that kind of filter... It's an amazing number. It's full-on rock by the Beatles, first of all. It's not some middle-of-the-road pop ditty. I mean, they're really belting this song. It's full force. And it's completely unique. It doesn't match anything they did before or after. And I think that it's also the Beatles being themselves, as they always were. I don't think they're posing or trying to be nice or anything. It's absolutely full-on Beatles. I wanted to redress that in this show. And also I want to figure out where did it come from because it was such a giant leap. Richard, we've spoken about this briefly once before and I've come to have a new opinion of She Loves You in that I think it was a reaction. If you listen, I mean, it was their fourth single, but but the reaction to the third single is what begat uh, She Loves You as far as I'm concerned. Even in later years, towards the end of, of John's life, he would bitterly recount the idea that that uh, the British papers had slagged off from me to you as a substandard Beatles record. And earlier in, in his response was, well, yeah, what, our, th- our third record was substandard? How could you have a substandard one? You only made a couple of records. And George, in 1976, actually, when I saw the expanded version of, of when he was doing promotion for 33 and a third, he he brought up the same thing. You know, can you believe that they, you know, are sort of slagging us off on this? So I I've kind of come to feel that this was a deliberate attempt to to put everything in the kitchen sink into a a hot single just to shut the press up. Yeah, but they really hit it out of the park here, right? You know, if they're setting out to outdo from me to you, which in its own way was kind of unique. They're firing on all cylinders, aren't they, as songwriters and how they've conceptualised this song. And the very fact that they start it with the refrain, with the chorus, to me, that says they knew that this was completely infectious, that they'd hit the bullseye. I think it's the drum roll that does it for me. I mean, it's just like all of a sudden you're in, you know what I mean? Kaboom. But, you know, it's funny you say that with From Me To You, it wasn't properly appreciated. McCartney, in the Beatles anthology book, says, Brian Matthew, the radio presenter, reviewed She Loves You in Melody Maker and called it banal rubbish. None of us had heard the word banal, and we thought, (laughs) banal? What's that? Soppy? Too rebellious? What does banal mean? But when the record zoomed to number one in the Melody Maker chart the next week, he was on the front page disclaiming his comments. No, no, at first I thought maybe it was a little banal but it grows on you. <laughs> Walking it back. Personally, I think this song is a quantum leap. I think the Beatles made a few huge quantum leaps. Obviously, one would have been Rubber Soul, and the next one would have been Sgt. Pepper's. But I think that 
this song is, is as big of a quantum leap for its time as Sgt. Pepper was. Um, it's just sonically, it's completely different than what previously came. And it actually has an energy that I think um, has yet to be rivaled in Beatles singles since, uh, since after that. I mean, I Want to Hold Your Hand is amazing. But but she loves you has a a raw sort of um, I've I've always looked at she loves you as like the beginning of um, the whole new wave movement where um, they they the use of toms um, well we can get, I'm going to get more into that later about how Ringo's drumming and and the fact that the Beatles used a number of very interesting hooks in this song. It became their signature trade. I mean, George is doing some very interesting things. Ringo's doing some very interesting things that up until this point, they hadn't figured out yet. When you say it sounds different, do you mean technologically it sounds different or are you just talking about the musical sound? Well, both, but technologically it's different. Um, obviously, uh, the fact that we've only been living with a mono version kind of like doesn't give us a chance to analyze it like we were when we finally heard the stereo version of I Want to Hold Your Hand. Um, everything just kind of, for mono in this song, everything just kind of melts together and just works perfectly. So you can't necessarily hear how much... Um, uh, how much ambience is leaking in on the vocal mics with the instruments and all that. Um, it just all just really fits together beautifully. I think the fact that it's um, just in mono and the master tape that still exists is mono EQ'd for a release on a single mm-hmm. kind of makes it sound compressed in a way that other Beatle records don't. I mean, maybe uh, the B-side, I'll Get You, sounds a bit like it, too. But um, everything that we've heard surrounding it and and since, because we've had stereo mixes, just sounds a little more spacious and roomy. I mean, even when you hear it in mono, it, it somehow She Loves You has for some reason like a transistor radio sound for me. Which is um, great. Yeah. yeah, and no matter no matter how high tech the versions of it we we've gotten, it it still has that very compressed sound, and it's that compression I think that is partly responsible for the kind of energy that I think we all hear that that makes it sound just like a an explosion after everything that's come before it. But you know, I I think you can hear in it certain things that they were working up to that's what really interests me is you know when i listen something like i saw her standing there so of course you can sort of hear the influences you know you might say i can hear some chuck berry in there or gene vincent with she loves you i struggle to find those influences because it's that different it's that unique it doesn't for me bear hardly any resemblance to american rock and roll don't you, do you hear any calypso? Do you hear any uh, beginnings of reggae or blue beat in it? Because I do. You do. I do. Where? In the guitar. Ah. Okay. It's it's if you listen to "She Loves You," especially if you listen to it on the Japanese one where it's at the right speed, um, and then listen to Haitian "Divorce" by Steely Dan. Thank you. 
Yeah, it's George's guitar because uh, John's playing his acoustic, so it's um, it's George's. It's it's like one, two, three, four, one. Ba dun dun dun. You know, he's playing on the on the and beat, like um, like the off beat, like like uh, that whole uh, type of style of music is. And it jumped I, for some reason. That part always jumped out at me, even as a kid, and I couldn't figure out why it seemed a little different until the it. You know, years later or a little bit later, I'll I call your name, which was obviously a far more deliberate attempt at that sort of music. Yeah, the reggae thing seems subtle at best to me. I, I'm I'm willing to you know consider it as a a possibility and go back and listen to those lead guitar parts again. Um, but it doesn't jump out at you and make you say reggae the way I call your name does. It's, oh yeah, it's not as obvious. It's just that guitar bit. It's not exactly the Beatles version of My Boy Lollipop. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, I think that um, in addition to the compression, the fact that uh, of well, the instrumentation of this song actually has a lot to do with the sound too. The fact that John is playing the the Jumbo Gibson amplified um, creates this kind of a, a, a rich sort of jangly, but not quite as jangly as it got when George had the Rick and Rickenbacker 12 string. Um, but at the same time, George is playing, I think, a country gentleman. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, a straight amplified electric guitar. And then Paul on bass, Ringo on drums, you compress all of that. And, you know, I think that sort of yields this kind of, of, of explosive pop sound as well. Um, I think I think John's guitar being an acoustic, which you don't necessarily think of it as because because it is an amplified one. You know, is it that that Jumbo Gibson, I think, had a uh, you could put a jack in it and, and send it through an amp. But it's still fundamentally an acoustic guitar, steel string acoustic guitar sound um, that kind of, I think, really filled out the texture and. Georgia stuff, uh, this is, I think, kind of new. You get these little turnarounds in between the verses. Yes, you love you, and you know you should be glad. That kind of thing he did in I Want to Hold Your Hand, too, their next single. When I say that something... We think of lead guitarists these days as being Jimi Hendrix or Eric Clapton, you know, out there doing big solos. But for George, it was a lot of it was kind of decorative. But in She Loves You, it's also sort of thematic. You know, he anticipates the chorus. She says you love you, and you know that can't be bad. It's that same yeah, yeah, yeah chord progression. And then they sing it. That's kind of a big leap for them. They didn't have that kind of, uh, I don't know if you would call it subtlety. It's not that subtle, but it's, it's, it's an interesting sort of compositional touch where you're sort of prefiguring the, uh, the chorus or the, you know, uh, the ref refrain on the guitar before the voices come in and do it. Um, and I think another thing is, uh, you know, so that was, was pretty new, I think, for George. Uh, another thing that they carried over, I think, from, from me to you, I think there were two things vocally. One is the Isley Brothers lift, you know, the woo. Yeah, uh, yeah it, it, it's more subtle in from me to you, isn't it? It's like full on in She Loves You. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, and John basically said, yeah, we were putting that in everything. And, you know, I mean, once they went out and found that when they did that and shook their heads, they got extra screams. <laughs> it's a, You know, it just seemed to yeah. be, I think, fun to do for a while for them. Do you think that's all it was? Don't you think they were aware of the sexual connotation, the excitement? Don't you think that's what it's about and that they were cognizant of that? Oh, yeah, probably. I, th- I would hmm. think so. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then after a while, they got bored of doing it, so they stopped. But, mm. um, but in She Loves You, it's uh, still prime time for the woo, as they say. She loves you, and I know that can't be bad. She loves you, and I know you should be glad. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the love like that, you know you. And the other thing is, you know, in from you hear it in from me to you, and you hear it in she loves you, where you have multiple vocals that begin in unison. You've got the group singing in unison, and then it expands out into a harmonized sound at the end of the of the line. Um, that's kind of a little trick they did in For Me To You, and it's even more apparent, I think, in She Loves You, because that last yeah in each sequence is is just so, you know, it's like bursts into Technicolor from black and white. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves you, yeah. Regardless of the calypso reggae aspects here going on, going back to my original question, do you hear any rock and roll roots in this song? You know, do you, or is this them leaving that all behind? Chord-wise, I know exactly what you're saying, Richard, and I, and I agree. There's really not a whole lot of. Um, there's some interesting twists and turns as far as um, starting off in a minor, and then the song is actually in like a major key, but the chorus is starting in a minor, which wasn't unheard of, but it was definitely unique. And, and most rock songs don't, I mean, most um, basic rock songs like Chuck Berry and that type of stuff, the things that they were influenced by definitely don't do that. Um, mm. You know, and, you know, the thing is, is with this song is when I say that it's a quantum leap, it's more than just the actual sound. Like we were just touching on this a few minutes ago about the actual um the actual parts. I think it's really the first time that um, that I can hear where individually they concentrated on um, on getting their own hooks in the song. Like um, was it was just pointed out. I mean, we can get into Ringo's um, part of it, but but George's guitar part um, is quite interesting because. Uh, hang on a second. Let me grab a guitar here and I'll and I'll demonstrate. So. The riff that George is playing, um, where that descending riff goes. Now, it's what's happening is he's putting it under, underneath the, where John and Paul say, because she loves you, and then he does it, you know, that can't be bad. Then he does it again. So what's interesting is he's actually throwing it in twice. Because she loves you, and you know that can be bad. Which is kind of, kind of very unique for its time. George was thinking on this, and then he does something at the end of the song, 
Well, interesting because with the the reggae thing you're talking about is she loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She loves you, and then yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. The, the, that. But what's interesting is okay. So the last time at the very end of the song, which makes it very unique, is he doesn't go with. When they at the very end of the song, when they say she loves you, yeah, 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 she, with a love like that, you know, you can be. He plays this very, very interesting guitar part that, that most people don't pick up on, but it adds this weird dissonance. This is the very last three. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves you, yeah, 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 yeah. He's playing under that. He's she loves you, and then he does this weird. Now that note, it's not in the chords, it's not in the vocals, but but George is putting it in there, and it's subtle, but it, it adds this weird little sort of cool tension, and most guitar players would have just went... But George changes it up every single time. So that's what I mean by them paying attention to detail that they never did before. Um, and and George and Ringo really shine on this song. Um, and they really add these little mini hooks that maybe you don't necessarily pick up on. But once it definitely affects the mood and the attitude of the song for the average listener. I mean, I wonder how quickly George, you know, got to that, if you know what I mean, working on this song, because it was recorded five days after John and Paul finished writing it. Um, you know, and it was just done in a five hour session. Yeah. And so I sort of wonder, you know, did he just hear it, you know, played by John and Paul and this comes straight to him? Or do you think he works his way there to be putting in these you know different touches you know i just think that george is that this is where george's real brilliance as a guitar player shines his ability to not necessarily solo but to come up with these little interesting little hooks and he just did it throughout i mean like his his planned out guitar solos are just really spectacular and uh, there's a little bit of uh, chet atkins influence in those chords um Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean his actual part, but I mean the fact that he could just hear a song and just go, he can, he can remove himself from the melody of what, uh, the what the song is, and come up with something alternating, like he did it in, you know, in almost every song from that that point on. I want to hold your hand. It's got very interesting little George parts when you when you hear it isolated. Mm-hmm. He's not playing like like a rhythm guitar player. And then just switching over to lead, he's actually he's playing around the 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 vocals like a pianist, like an accompanist would under different circumstances. It's very very unique. 
he seems to have been having a little bit of a jazz period too around here, um, which is kind of funny because um, when, you know when you listen to the things John would say in interviews, he was totally down on jazz. He just didn't like it and and and, <laughs> and spoke so contemptuously of it. But but George is um, sneaking these little jazz chords into songs. I mean, listen to all I've got to do, which sure. is you know shortly after this was recorded. Uh, just the end of the year. Um, and then he sort of gave up on that too. But uh, it, it seems... Yeah, that... you can imagine a few sharp looks from John. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I think I think there was obviously something about the added notes in jazz chords that was really beginning to appeal to George around this time. And uh, in, in, in a way, it's a pity that he didn't pursue it in, in that direction because their their music always was sort of harmonically more interesting than everybody else's but this would have put it into a whole different area but I think one of the reasons that John may have not have said anything because I think George is playing here these adding these extra chords, it adds an air of legitimacy to their early music. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, cool, we can do this. Like adding the the major sixth at the end of She Loves You. We know the story that like the George Martin thought it was a little on the hokey side and a little on the, the Glenn Miller side. Um, but them adding the major six, and to those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, here is the last chord in the song. And they're adding this note which is, I believe it's George hitting the major six. And um, I think George Martin made a comment, it's a little bit on the Glenn Miller side. And Yeah, he actually said, um, his quote was um, to Mark Lewison, I was sitting in my usual place on a high stool in Studio 2 when John and Paul first ran through the songs, George joining in on the choruses. I thought it was great, but was intrigued by the final chord, an odd sort of major sixth, with George doing the sixth and John and Paul the third and fifth, like a a Glenn Miller arrangement. They were saying, it's a great chord, nobody's ever heard it before. Of course, I knew that wasn't quite true. Well, nobody's ever heard it in a rock song up to that point, but George Martin is right in the sense that the major six was a big, big band chord. Like, I think it's like, um, like a song like In the Mood. There's that six. So it, it was a pretty common chord back in the day, but not the Beatles day. Townsend used to do that sort of thing, isn't that kind of like in, uh, in Tommy? Yeah, I mean, Townsend's big thing is a sus four. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, that, that's a B sus four, and here's a B6. So but also just not something that you would think of in a rock and roll, you know, until those guys decided to incorporate it, that I can think of. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really a, a great touch there. To steal a, a bit from Walter Everett, he actually does go a bit into previous rock uses of the um, the sixth. Uh, he says that there's one in Teddy Bear, also in Fats Domino's Coquette, and in The Shadows Midnight. Oh, let me be, oh, let him be your teddy bear. I just want to be. 
of course, another thing that's unique about this song, as I said before, it starts with the chorus and there's no bridge section. It yeah. starts with the chorus, ends with the chorus. Right. I mean, again, I wonder what the decision making was there. I wonder if they were looking for a bridge and just thought it doesn't need one. Well, you know, for me to you doesn't really have a bridge either. I mean, they, they sort mm. of give the impression of there being one by having the verse repeated as an instrumental with a, a different kind of thing going on, the bass taking the melody and uh, and then sort of singing in the harmonica. Uh, it, it sounds a bit different, but it really is just the verse again. Yeah, um, right. It, it, it seems like it's like a, like a fake middle eight. Right. Um, there are also, uh, you know, the... I was I've been looking the last few weeks since we've been talking about this for predecessors and um the two predecessors which are very distant predecessors uh that I found both also don't have bridges. Um one is uh Bobby Rydell's Forget Him. You know, Paul has mentioned a number of times uh in sometimes giving the title and in other cases he said uh well you know we were we were thinking about Bobby Rydell. I don't know why I think he must have had a song we were interested in and and the song probably was Forget Him which was on the charts in England at the time they wrote She Loves You. Yeah, it was because it was recorded in England at Pie in February of 63. It was released in eight, it was actually on the charts in April of 63. It wasn't released in the States until the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, and and what it was I know in 2000 Paul said there was a Bobby Rydell song, he doesn't name it, out at the time and as often happens you think of one song when you write another. We were in a van up in Newcastle. I'd planned an answering song where a couple of us would sing She Loves You and the other one answers, yeah, yeah. We decided that was a crummy idea as it was, but at least we then had the idea for a song called She Loves You. Right. And that doesn't really happen in the Bobby Rytel song. Forget him. Forget him. Forget him if he doesn't love Forget him if he doesn't care Don't let him tell you that he wants you Cause he can't give you love which isn't there Oh, little girl, he's never dreaming of you He'll break your heart, you wait and see Maybe it's an inspiration in the sense that it is someone talking to someone else and conveying advice. But the advice he's conveying is just completely, you know, the standard love song advice. He doesn't love you, but I do. So forget him and, you know, I'll take care of you. Um, Fundamentally, it's the same thing as they're saying in This Boy, which was also from pretty much the same period a few months Mm. later. You know, that boy doesn't love you i i do you know that's what forget him is basically and there i i hear very few points of connection between forget him and she loves you although you know in forget him he has this uh thing where maybe the third line of each verse he 
gets to a one-syllable word and then bends it into three syllables by going up. And one of them is the word C, you know, C. Uh, and they do a little bit of that with, you know, say yay. Uh, but right. I, I can't say they got that <laughs> from Bobby Rydell, you know. Yeah, yeah um, that's a tough stretch. The other thing that struck me as a weird predecessor in the sense that, I mean, it's nothing like it, and I don't know that the Beatles even knew this record. But think about little Peggy March's I Will Follow Him. It yes. begins with the chorus. <laughs> it begins with the chorus, and it's a really catchy chorus, you know? I, I yeah. love him, I love him, and where he goes, I'll follow, I'll follow, right. I'll follow. And it keeps coming back, and it also has no bridge. Right. So... As soon as you mentioned that, funny enough, Alan, I never thought of that before, but as soon as you mentioned that song, I could hear that similarity without a doubt. Mm-hmm. Well, another thing, too, about She Loves You and, and not having a bridge is th- the song already has three legitimate sections. It's got the She Loves You, yeah, 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 you know, and then the verse is, you think you lost your love, I saw yesterday, and then they got the third part, because she loves you, and you know. So it already has three distinct sections Mm-hmm. And we're talking about a song that's under two minutes here. So putting a bridge in would have been probably a huge mistake because it didn't need it. It already had three legitimate parts, which is one more than a lot of rock songs did back in the day. For the record, it's actually two minutes 21. Oh, two twenty one. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. there you go. Um, and the, and the, the weird reason I know that is because... <laughs> because um, I mean, apart from looking at it in iTunes. <laughs> Another funny thing that this song does is it repeats the hook, She Loves You, 15 times. If you count them singing it and George's guitar chords, because you can't hear them without thinking She Loves You, because it's the same melody. Um, so if you take those together, that's like 15 times in 2 minutes 21. That's that's an awful lot of time. And, uh, and it, it kind of reminded me of the fact that uh, I, I knew this guy named Kurt Munchese, who was Philip Glass's recording engineer. And before he worked for Philip Glass, he worked for John and Yoko, um, running their Butterfly recording studio. And he said, you know, the reason I went to work for Philip was because John always told me, if you have a good hook just keep repeating it over and over and over again. And here's a guy who's repeating it for like 20 minutes at a time. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. But you can hear it and she loves you because, you know, the, the amazing number of times that it gets said again. And it, yeah. it, it does completely stick in your mind. And uh, So where did those extra three seconds come from, Alan? Because I'm sitting here with my very original Swan 45 from mm-hmm. 1964, which, of course, clocks in at 2.18. Maybe the reverb just swallowed it up. Or maybe the <laughs> reverb extended it. Maybe yeah. that's the extra three seconds is that... Uh... Yeah, he closes the hi-hat. <laughs> oh, no, that's <laughs> I feel fine. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think a discussion of this single, it's worthwhile of talking about the underbelly as well, because what would Paul's dad have thought? The flip side of the record is, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Must have had enough of his oh yes. You know, the yeah thing, I think we, uh, you know, today it is, it's just so common. We, we have lost sight of how transgressive it, it was at Absolutely. the time. I mean, Paul's father's reaction was uh, what any parent would have said, probably. I mean, around the time this was happening, when I, when I was in 
like, I don't know, what was it, fourth grade or something like that, we used to have lists of words that we were not to say in a, in a sentence or in speech or anything. And yeah, was like the top of the list. It was just considered so, you know, basic and class. Yeah, and, <laughs> yeah, I heard the same stuff. It's funny you mentioned that. Yeah, was very frowned upon. It was yes or no. And yet the Beatles would have heard it in a lot of R&B stuff. And um, in particular, um, Larry Williams, She Said Yeah, which we know they would have probably heard because it was the flip side of Bad Boy when it was released as a single. We knew they know Bad Boy, and they probably heard this too. Again, what a thing to do, right? With their fourth single, they establish a sort of slogan that's going to be associated with them forevermore. Yeah. You know, just incredible. What an achievement. Right. As songwriters. It's associated with them forevermore, but I think they only used it significantly in like three songs. She Loves You and It's Flip Side, I'll Get You, and then It Won't Be Long on With the Beatles. It Won't Be Long. And All yeah, You Need yeah. Is Love. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> oh, Slightly. Yeah. Slightly at the end. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they also use it in As All I've Got to Do as well. Um, forgot that one. That one's a little more subtle. They just sort of throw on a yeah at the end of the line. But so not a yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, just yeah. Just one. That's yeah. the thing, though. It is it's the it's the the triple, isn't it? It's this yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what they'd be associated with, not just the word yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, over mm-hmm. here in '64, you get book covers that would say Beatles, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Exactly. Like, well, a hard day's so. night in some countries was called yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think they couldn't get away from it. I think the reason they may have abandoned it it was it was so latched upon. If you look at any you know print ads or people parodying the Beatles, that's all they talk about. It. But and and always within the context of them being smiling and chirpy and all that, which you know that I'm sure they didn't feel that way. So they once they got it out of their system, they wanted to move on. Oh yeah, like I said, I don't think they could get away from it. Even a few years later, when Arthur Fiedler did an intro piece for the Beatles at Shea Stadium film when it showed in 67. Hello, my name is Arthur Fiedler, and I like the Beatles. During the past few years, I've had the pleasure of recording a number of Beatles compositions with the Boston Pops Orchestra, and I'm happy to report that they have been most enthusiastically received. Of all the comments that I've heard about these recordings, the one that I treasure most came from the Beatles themselves. It was a brief note which said, Dear Arthur, we think you have a great band. Best wishes. Perhaps because I am conductor of the Boston Pops Orchestra, I'm not expected to react with the outward enthusiasm usually displayed by the average Beatles fan. However, I think the Beatles are great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. I love the comment by Norman Smith. Uh, He said that I was setting up the microphone when I first saw the lyrics on the music stand. She loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves you. Yeah, 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 yeah. I thought, oh, my God, what a lyric. This is going to be one I don't like. But when they started to sing it, bang, wow, terrific. I was up at the mixer jogging around. (laughs) Of course, this coming from the man who's 
big paycheck was with his song, Oh Babe, What Would You Say? <laughs> yeah. They started composing the song on the 26th of June, 63, during the Roy Orbison tour, and on the tour bus and in their room at Newcastle's Turks Hotel before the second concert of the day at the Majestic Ballroom. And then they completed it the next day at the McCartney home in Liverpool, which is where Jim McCartney, you know, starts making his comments. According to Paul, we heard him at the beginning of the show, but he also said to Barry Miles, it was again a she, you, me, I personal preposition song. I suppose the most interesting thing about it was that it was a message song. It was someone bringing a message. It wasn't us anymore. It was moving off the I love you girl or love me do. It was a third person, which was a shift away. I saw her and she said to me to tell you that she loves you. So there's a little distance we managed to put in, which was quite interesting. And then John also said about the yeah, yeah. He said, I don't know where the yeah, yeah, yeah came from. I remember when Elvis did All Shook Up. It was the first time in my life that I'd heard uh-huh, oh yeah, and yeah, yeah, all sung in the same song. I'm all shook up, so now, what about Ringo's drumming, which really drives the song? Yeah, the Beatles sort of broke all the rules of what a traditional pop song would be up to this point by, I mean, yeah, they started with the chorus. I'm, I'm just counting them, the number of yeahs we all say just like during the, the, the part of this uh, whole entire podcast. It's going to be in the thousands, I'm sure. Um, the, the, the fact that they actually started um, in a minor key is is unique and uh also the fact that they don't start with a, a traditional drum beat um this is uh when i was just talking earlier about george's sort of stepping forward to um to really put like in like a hook in the song i mean ringo really does a great job the fact that he's playing he comes in with the the, the fill is cool that's fine but the fact that he comes in playing toms as opposed to his traditional symbol, is um, very, very against the rules. I mean, you, normally, if you're going to come in with a chorus, you just want like you just want it to come in as 100% to, to hook the listener instantly. But Ringo is using a more subtle technique. He's kind of backing up. But what's interesting is that adds a tension and an energy to a song that people discovered later later on like songs like um pump it up by elvis costello is a really good example like um everything is like on the toms and a lot of new wave was was doing this at the time and then during the pump it up part then it goes to like symbols but the 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 descending main part of the song is all toms and what it does is it kind of it gives you this feeling that they're holding back and there's something even better coming and um, this is very true in the case of She Loves You because you've got Ringo doing this um, this thing with the toms. And he's doing the, 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 uh, doing the little offbeats almost like Ticket to Ride will be um, in the not-too-distant future, um, and which is a very unique way to start the song because it adds this energy. So when he finally, they hit that third yeah, and he goes to his... 
um, he goes to his um, hi-hat, which he notoriously at the time just kept his hi-hat partially open. And that's part of the thing that adds this excitement to these early Beatles songs is you just hear this swishing cymbal sound going all the way through, which I don't, I'm not sure that, um, I haven't really paid any attention to the songs previous, but I know that like Love Me Do and um, um, From Me To You, um, they don't really have that in there quite as much. Ringo's hat is more closed, but the fact that he's got it opened, so he's going from this this floor tom, sort of, uh, sort of a frantic beat, going to uh, the hi-hat being open for the rest of the song just adds this uh, amazing uh, sort of sub-hook and tension. And it also brings um, that that whole intro, um, it makes it very, very different. So they're bucking the system by, by doing two things that normally wouldn't happen in a pop song at the time. And Ringo revisits the Tom thing every once in a while. He does it at the end of the song as well. It's just Really, really brilliant work. Craig, I, I, the thing I've always felt about that drum intro is part of the excitement for the non-musician is I listened to that and I felt like there's so much energy in this band, they're almost out of sync. Like, it's almost the record started to be recorded before the engineer hit the button. Yeah. And that they, to me, as soon as Ringo goes to that hi-hat, it's when the whole band is in sync again. It's not like all these energetic parts kind of slightly, you know, out of sync. But, but there's something about it pulls together uh, with incredible power as he hits that, that um, hi-hat, I thought. And uh, it's always yeah. loved that. I can't think of another Beatle record that starts that way where you almost feel it's like a mis- almost a mistake, you know? Well, the closest thing I can think of would be Can't Buy Me Love um, because it, Ringo doesn't really start off with a full drum beat and then he just he kind of waits until um, they get to the, the after the intro. Yeah, that's um, true. That's a good one. Uh, but it doesn't have. You, you're right in the fact that this this song has just got this raw energy that that I don't think they've like I was saying earlier. I don't think they've duplicated since. And it also foreshadows Ringo's. Um, Paul has yet to at this point become um, like like Paul's bass playing became like subtle hooks within themselves. He, Paul had so many hooks as a bass player in the songs at this point he was just playing mostly the root and like the fifth and going back and forth um but this really shows where Ringo is going to go in the future like songs like Ticket to Ride and and nobody has ever been able to duplicate Ringo's ability to to hold off to not play the hi-hat and and to play just toms like a great example is like Come Together um, how he basically he holds back on the the verses, and he purposely doesn't put symbols in. And then, like another good example would be Revolution, um, the single. It's and once again, it's like the toms. The energy's coming from the toms, just like on She Loves You. It adds this, just this. I, you know, a tri- it's almost like a tribal primitive thing that 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 um, sort of like. Ringo could do that not many other people could really, really accomplish. 
Yeah, and vocally, you know, you talk about the energy. I mean, the vocals, as well as I said earlier, they they really are belting. You know, you've got John and Paul harmonising, but at the end, when it's, the, you know, the yeah, 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 it's like they're reaching for greatness for me at the end there. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's it's the chorus, it sounds like it could be... 50 people say I was just right. going to say it sounds like so much more you know it's and you don't get that feeling again until you know hey Jude or something that there's this right. giant room full of people singing it's right. almost like the whole generation is singing with them yes and then that final note as I say when they hit the end there it is it's just like glorious yeah. absolutely glorious well that's well, probably the sixth that's the effect yes. that that sixth has it is. You, that magic you don't expect it. you know you should be glad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. The fact that John and Paul could sing in unison and sound so much like each other, and it's almost a doubling effect, but it's not. They, you know, they did it again, and I want to hold your hand. Um, I think what happens is is the fact that they're singing together and then they separate for harmonies it's it's you know it's an old everly brothers trick and it's been done before but the fact that they can do it so well um it adds this sort of like a group sing sort of like what you're talking about it adds this sort of um like it's we're kind of shouting at you and telling you this story as opposed to if john had just been singing it and and Paul would have chimed in for the harmonies. There would have been something much more personal about it if that would have happened, but you wouldn't have had this, we're this group of people singing at you and we're telling you this story and there's a yeah. sort of a energy and a franticness about it that wouldn't have existed, it, even if they would have double-tracked it, which they didn't, you know, at the time, they didn't sort of discover the double-tracking thing um, until a few, until a little bit later. But... Um, just that that energy alone it's also the thing that really when i was a kid that really hooked me with i want to hold your hand okay you got these two guys singing they're singing together and then they split off every every once in a while mm. um it, it's really just adds to the energy of the song and then as i've said before isn't it the first time on record on a pop record that we hear a sarcastic vocal with Lennon when he sings Apologize to her. It's that misogynistic attitude coming out there. You know, you're going to have to apologize <laughs> to a woman. Yeah. I think Marshall McLuhan kind of addressed that a few years later talking about the Beatles and introducing bass sort of speech patterns into popular music. That that was the first time that he was aware of that people... Uh, we're, do we're doing that, and, and the Beatles were doing it. Right. Yeah. Now, because the standard procedure at EMI in those days was to erase the original two-track session tape for singles once they'd been mixed down to the mono master to press the records, and they'd done that on Love Me Do, PSI Love You, She Loves You, I'll Get You, that meant the tracks only existed, you know, as a mono master there'd be mock stereos which we've heard when they came to record it in german they couldn't just overdub the vocal that they had to record a whole new backing track right it's astonishingly close it is isn't it yeah it's a little more definition in it but it could be just the awkwardness of hearing it in german i don't think it matches it 
There is something lacking in the German one for me. Yeah. Energy. Well, as, as Roy Carr and Tony Tyler said that, you know, the German vernacular wasn't as best suited to pop records. <laughs> Silibdick was recorded in 13 takes and then they had to do multiple takes of the German vocals that were then edited together. Right. But the backing track is so close that um, people have attempted to do a bootleg stereo version right. by matching yes. the the instrumental track to the mono you know so that you have the vocals and and the instruments on one side and just the instruments of the german one on the other side and i, I think you have to do a little bit of nipping and tucking to make it fit but it, it's really pretty close and you know the spectral version is someone who applied spectral uh editing to the mono version you know the spectral stuff is it's it's very recent computer plug-in things where you can you really can make a better attempt at a stereo version out of mono than you were ever able to before because it will bring out the bass frequencies or you know it will will bring out very specific things i think isotope does the best software for that but there's a freeware out there called isse that does mm-hmm. that and what it does is just you can you almost like painting you look at the sound waves and you paint over and say, okay, I think that's the bass and you can separate it out pretty seamlessly. So people yeah. are doing a lot with it. Yeah, so a few people have, have you know, taken the few Beatles mono tracks, mono only tracks like Love Me Do and She Loves You and have, have made spectral edits. And, uh, you know, it's there's only so much you can do, but um, it does give the impression of having something like instrumental placement in it. There's a difference between stereo and mono, obviously, and if you mix something in mono and then try and fake it, 
Yeah. It just, you, you lose the guts of it. So <laughs> never mind, it's all the past, isn't it? She Loves You was recorded on the 1st of July, 63, mixed on the 4th of July, released in the UK on the 23rd of August, 16th of September in the US. First time that the songwriting credit was Lennon-McCartney instead of McCartney-Lennon. And here's the, th the thing for me, is that it had a half million advance orders in Britain, mm -hmm. okay? And to think that, you know, what an incredible thing back in those days, you know, when there was so much focus on singles, the singles charts, and to have a half million advance orders, not knowing what this song is going to be, just based on the preceding songs and, and the album, and boy, do they deliver. I mean, you know, they, as I said, they completely knock it out of the park. I think as a footnote, um, you want to keep in mind that I think the population of England at the time was only something like 53 million. Right. So having half a million advance orders, I mean, that's a pretty significant percentage given that yes. no one had heard it. Yeah. You know? and, and, you know, it could fall on its face, right? It could be a big disappointment, but no this was the Beatles. But think of the lead up to it too, guys, that that was the summer they had their own radio series every week. And uh, mm -hmm, they, right. they were on, they were doing that summer tour. There's that famous tape from Bournemouth where they actually play it before it came out. And uh, George makes that little mistake in it and stuff. It's kind of cute. It's actually the Beatles best selling single and the best selling single of the 1960s in the UK. And it, was, it actually remained the best-selling single of all time in the UK until of Mull of Kintyre in 77. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> but here's some more stats on the song. It entered the chart in the UK on the 31st of August, remained there for 31 consecutive weeks, 18 of them in the top three. It was number one for four weeks, starting from the 14th of September, and then had another two weeks at number one, starting on the 30th of November, which is very unusual. And it was switching places with I Want to Hold Your Hand. And I have to say, I don't know if it's because of the historical context and, you know, that they one followed the other. And, of course, I remember that as a kid. But I have to say that as unique as She Loves You is, and so is I Want to Hold Your Hand, which doesn't sound like She Loves You, but I kind of place them in the same bubble. You know, mm -hmm. these two songs, for me, somehow... There's a pairing there, you know, these two completely unique songs. Mm -hmm. Definitely that was the case here, because I Want to Hold Your Hand came out and finally cracked them into the market, and then everyone who had Beatles songs available to sell, meaning VJ and Swan, um, immediately brought them out again and, and flooded the market with them. But I Want to Hold Your Hand and She Loves You were the two that, even if you weren't interested in the Beatles, you knew those two because they were inescapable. And do you hear anything? I mean, you did your book about I Want to Hold Your Hand. Do you hear any of She Loves You, you know, the, the techniques that they applied in She Loves You, do you hear anything being repeated or built upon in I Want to Hold Your Hand? Well, only um, George's guitar turnarounds, you know, that, that idea is yeah. carried over a bit and they're still doing the uh, woo thing. Uh, so those two are there, but otherwise, you know, it again heads off in a, a completely different direction. Yeah. But they also, they, there's, there's also the interplay of mono and major keys in, in both songs too. 
Um, I want to hold your hand starts in major, but the bridge is in minor. Right. I think that the I want to hold your hand has a sonically has more of a sophistication for it because obviously they they I believe it's their first uh, four track recording, and uh, they were able to to, to put in th- those little subtleties like. Um, Double tracking the word "hand" and putting that right. extra that extra riff da 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 da, which is uh, I heard it's McCartney doubling it with a uh, with chords and and it, it I want to hold your hands interesting in the fact that McCartney's actually playing chords on his bass in the bridge, which is was almost unheard of at the time. But there's more of a frantic calmness about I want to hold your hand. Ringo mm-hmm. still is doing the he's doing the swishing. Um, hi-hats which gives it that energy but there's something more held back about it um something more r&b about it and yeah. it definitely it's like you, you just w- without even knowing the history you can just listen to it and go okay that they're they're doing she loves you it doesn't crack the 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 u.s market maybe it's because of the things i've said that it, it goes off in a it sounds so different obviously and um it's it's it starts off in a minor key with the drums and, and all these things. It's almost like they they were shooting themselves in the foot trying to get into America with a song like this. But it was brilliant for everywhere else. And then saying, "I want to hold your hand." Okay, we're just gonna we're gonna go right for this market. So let's keep it simple. I mean, the the lyrics are much more simple in "I want to hold your hand" than "She loves you." Um, it's just a it's really a much more straightforward song. I love that frantic calmness. It, that really does describe it. Um, you know, lyrically, it's also interesting, isn't it? You know, you said she loves you is just over two minutes long, and yet it manages to tell a story. Right. It, it really does. You know, it's, it's. I mean, it's not exactly Keats. I get that. You know, or Shakespeare, but still, <laughs> you know, for a, a, a t- just a two-minute-plus pop song, it covers a lot of ground in that time. Oh, it's a high right. school romance, isn't it? I mean, that's how it still probably works in high school where, you know, the girl doesn't come up to you directly and say it's it's all okay again. It's, you know, the friends are the negotiators. Right. Also, the fact that it's a very fast tempo and um, there is singing throughout. Um, there's like, um, like a From Me to You and um, Love Me Do and previous songs, they had some sort of instrumental break. So this song doesn't have an instrumental break. It's just like they're singing from the top to the bottom all the way through the song. So it gives mm-hmm. them ample time with the speed, the tempo of this song, and the fact that there is no instrumental break. It gives them a chance to really get the song, get three full verses that all make sense. Now, you talk about the tempo. There is that version of the Japanese album of, of the American yeah. Meet the Beatles. And... She Loves You There is a fractionally slower tempo. It's been alleged, but hasn't been proven as far as I know, that that was the real tempo and that the song was sped up. It does sound okay at the slow tempo. It doesn't sound weird. What's your take on that? I was doing a little studying on that. um, And, um, I mean, every live version is is right in G. It It hasn't been sped up. Now, if you watch the first Ed Sullivan show, they're playing a half step down. Um, the song's in G flat. Every song is uh, is a half step down. There's been some controversy as to whether they did that because of um, 
because this boy, maybe it was, John was a little intimidated by hitting the high note, so they went down a half a step because everything's a little easier to sing. Well, George had the cold, too. I think that might have been part of it. If they're doing yeah. this boy, you know, and they got to harmonize on it. Right, but but here's the interesting thing about that, because it, it's clearly, like I was just watching um, the Ed Sullivan version of some of these songs and playing along with it, and it's clearly a half step down. But... The interesting thing is, is that if you watch the um, the documentary, the the first U.S. visit, there's a there's a scene where um, they're showing um, kids watching it in their living room, um, watching the watching them on the Ed Sullivan show uh, on TV. Now that is clearly in the right key, so that hmm. that's in G, which which yeah. tells me that the transfer somewhere down the line, the transfer to DVD or the transfer. I don't know, maybe it was Kinescope or something like that. but I think you're going from uh, the Mazels were shooting at 24 and the end product was going to have to be shown at 25 frames per second. And so the films they made that from, it, it could be the back and forth. I'm sure you've heard this before where things speed up, you know, when they'd be dubbed from one side of the Atlantic to the other. I think it's something more right. along those lines. Um, right. Where also, you know, so it's, it's it, I'm sure... I think the Ed Sullivan videotape is is pretty stable, and I think that's the real the thing I would put my money on. And the number one DVD where they did all the videos, they were goofing around with the speeds on that, totally, because right. they wanted to fly in parts of re, of the records, you know, to to beef up the bass and stuff like that. So they had to they had to speed up Sullivan, which is why that's kind of tough to look at. So are you saying that the um, that the Ed Sullivan show the Beatles definitely detuned to half a step? I believe so, and I've heard two different theories. One I heard was because of uh, George having the cold and, you know, had to see Dr. Feelgood giving him the, the B12, quote-unquote. The other thing I heard, which was very interesting theory from um, the guys from Studio 2, uh, the Beatles tribute band, and they said they probably just tuned to the, a piano that was a half, half a step out in the, in, the, in the Ed Sullivan Theater. Wow, that's a pretty uh, big stretch. You know, the thing is, back in those days, obviously they didn't have strobe tuners, so it, it, it's very possible that, that they could have just uh, just accidentally tuned down a half a step. But the Beatles' first and third show has them playing down a half of a step, which makes sense because they recorded it on the same day. Um, and the second show from Miami is in standard tuning but the Washington DC concert they did in between is a half a step down so that leads me to believe that they actually intended for that to happen probably to make things easier for John and Paul to sing when they go down to Washington one of the things that fascinates me about their first concert for a paying crowd is that they put George out there <laughs> Okay, you open the show. You know, Lennon and Lennon does not say a word during the show that I can think of. You know what I mean? It's almost like maybe he was a little intimidated. And, you know, maybe that is, the, like you say, just so he made sure he's saying this boy properly. It's a common thing for, for people to practice in in a key that's a little higher and then drop it because it just makes it seem that much easier. It's sort of like a um, an athlete that... that that runs and he puts weights around his ankles that um so when he takes the weights off it just um has that feeling um so much it's so much easier and more of a freedom about it 
So, Craig, the extraction from this is, do you think that it was recorded at a slower speed, She Loves You, and then sped up? You know, that's like all the research that I was just doing is like, it seems to, it it really seems to be split half and half. I mean, people, some people say that they, they detuned. You know, it would be the only time that they ever did it. Other than mm. like Paul, like obviously they detuned a lot later and Paul detuned a, a step for yesterday. When I'm 64 is sped up. Well, there's a number of things that are sped up, like, but that's, that's sped up. That, I mean, it's one thing to take the, you know, the VSO, you know, the big knob that's, that's on uh, tape recorders and you can speed up and slow things down. Back in the USSR was sped up. It was originally recorded in G and then they sped it up it, and Paul sang over the more frantic, faster version in A because when you speed things up, it obviously speeds up. It not only raises the pitch, but it, it, it speeds up the tempo. Um, it's a little different than, than them actually taking their guitars and, and detuning down a half a step. I mean, not many people really did that in pop music back in those days. I mean, Hendrix did it like like it became like a pretty regular thing later on. Creedence Clearwater would tune down an entire step so that like their their D chord would be a C, which which would drive me crazy when I was a kid because like <laughs> like uh, Proud Mary, like you know, I'm trying to play it as a kid. Like I'm playing D, and it doesn't sound like their D. You know, or it, it's it, it never made sense to me. So why why the chords didn't work? But it's it's weird to think that they would tune down a half a step like that. Yeah. And the other thing too is that I always thought that one thing that may supports more my thinking that it was actually a, a transfer thing is I find that the the songs on the Ed Sullivan show feel like they're a little slower, a little bit more. Um, they're a little bit more measured tempo-wise, and they're they're not quite as frantic as, as some of their other things, which surprises me because this is their big moment. You would think that they would just go with guns a-blazing with, with the tempo and everything. So it just feels to me like there's more of a subdued, like a calmness to the Ed Sullivan She Loves You as opposed to any other She Loves You recorded at that same time or around that same time. So is is the consensus that the Japanese one is the correct speed or or not that it's I don't think this consensus I love it. I think it sounds more natural to me uh and more interesting in a sense maybe just cuz I've heard the other version a thousand times but to tell you the truth I I'd heard rumors of it but I'd never really listened to it before, you know, getting ready for the show. I really like it. So do I. I I know some people prefer the other version but I I actually do quite like it. It, it sounds like they're real voices. She loves you, yeah. Thank you. 
Production by Richard Buskin. Theme music by Craig Bartok. several experiments and I have come to this conclusion. So? You think uh, that you have lost your love? Well, I saw her yesterday. It is you that you're thinking of and she has told me what to say. She says she loves you. Yeah! Yeah? Yeah? She loves you. Yeah! 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 She loves you. Yeah! 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 yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she said you hurt her so oh. she almost lost her mind. <laughs> and now she says mm. she knows that you're not the hurting kind. Did she? She says she loves you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. She loves you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. She loves you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Mm. You know, Bert, it's up to you. Mm. I think it's only fair. Pride can hurt you too. Apologise to her, Bert. Cause she loves you. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. She loves you, Bert. Why don't you mind your bleeping business? Hmm. Strange thing is, I'm frightfully keen on her too. Last. Yeah, yeah. She loves you, Derek. Well, all trouble is we'll pack our bloody nose in other people's affairs. <laughs> <laughs> 